Great to have you here this morning. Good morning to all of you this morning. So my name is Matt Benson, and I'm one of the elders here at Grace Church. Uh, This is going to be our interactive portion of the morning. So here's what I want you to do. Question of the morning. What is a smell that you really, really like? Like you smell it, you go, whoa, okay. So what I want you to do is turn to the person next to you, just share that smell. What smell do you really like? Okay, go for it. Thirty seconds to divulge that deep, dark secret. What is that smell? And if back of the sound booth, if you guys can bring up the, yep, perfect. Okay, share some of those. What are some of those smells that you just love? Uh, that is out loud, not with Jesus. Share them right here, right now. Coffee, barbecue. Coffee, barbecue. Whoa, 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 what? Lilacs. Lilacs. And then what over here? Vanilla. Popcorn. Oh, yeah, oh, that's nice. Popcorn, what else? Cookies baking. Not just cookies, but cookies baking. Yeah, a couple of more. Bacon. Bacon? Oh, man. Bacon stops me in my tracks. I don't know about you, but if I can smell bacon, I just, and Emmy is that way as well. If she smells bacon, whoa, you just start floating towards it. Okay, one more. Lavender. So Melody has a smell that she likes and is strange. It's skunks. She thinks skunks smell good. I didn't know that before we got married. And so I thought, Whoa, what? Skunks don't smell good. In fact, Joshua, uh, our 16-year-old, told us just the other day we were sharing that. He said, you know, skunks actually smell like marijuana. Now, there are two things going on there. How is it that my 16-year-old opera-singing son intimately knows what marijuana smells like? Is it a little too much Giuseppe Verdi? Like, what is going on? Do I need to throw a Bill Gaither cassette his way? Like, what's going to fix this problem? Like, what? So that's, that's problem one. Like, what, what do we do? Problem two is now I understand that I'm married to a woman that really likes the smell of marijuana. <laughs> that's new. I didn't know that for sure before we were married. Aromas. Do you know the aromatherapy industry in the United States over the next five years is set to grow by 14.1% every year? Those of you who have essential oils, those of you who walk in your house and you've got things kind of floating around, that industry is growing. Smells or scents take you somewhere as well. Like I can be somewhere around the world and I smell something and suddenly I'm like in my grandmother's house. Does that happen to you? Yeah, like... Like there's something potent, like powerful, like capturing, like moving about a smell or a scent and aroma. Do you know, we ourselves have smells. My dog reminds me of that. My dog, I've got a collie, and so collies have this really long nose and evidently proud moment, proud collie owner moment, they can smell better than other dogs. And so you go for walks and beauty's just smelling everywhere. I walk in and she smells me up and down. Yep, you're the guy. And my sister comes over to the house and she loves my sister. She smells her and she gets excited. But we have certain scents as well, certain aromas. But our lives do as well. It's not just our bodies. Our lives convey an aroma. 
And Paul picks up on this in the passage to which we're going to go today. And so let's jump into Scripture to see where Paul takes us. 2 Corinthians 2 Verse 12, now when I arrived in Troas to proclaim the gospel of Christ, even though the Lord had opened a door of opportunity for me, I had no relief in my spirit because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and set out for Macedonia. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and who makes known through us the fragrance that consists of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a sweet aroma of Christ to God. Among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to the latter, an odor from death to death, but to the former, a fragrance from life to life. And who's adequate for these things? For we are not like so many others, hucksters, who peddle the word of God for profit, But we are speaking in Christ before God as persons of sincerity, as persons sent from God. I just want to remind us of Paul's relationship with the Corinthians. So it goes back to around 51 AD on his missionary journey in which he ends up in Corinth. He spends about 18 months in Corinth planting a church and being with them. And you know this from what Gary has told us in your own study of Corinthians, that it's a somewhat contentious relationship. And so Paul visits, then he sends a a letter that we don't have, and then they send a letter back, and then he writes 1 Corinthians. What you need to know is that Corinth was known for its debauched lifestyle. And so there's even a a word in Greek, uh, Corinthiazo, to live like a Corinthian, which meant to live in debauchery. And so Paul is pressing against this debauchery that's happening. They're pressing back on him. He's, he's seeking to dis- demonstrate what life in Christ looks like and the freedom that's found therein. He writes 1 Corinthians in January to April 56 AD. And then he has this painful visit that he describes, spring or summer of that year. And then he writes what's called his severe letter. I mean, this is a little soap opera-like, right? This is like an email exchange where you're like, okay, I got and you write back. And then we have 2 Corinthians where we find ourselves today. And he speaks of a future visit. And so this is a love relationship, but there's a lot of tension in this relationship. 2 Corinthians, the second epistle to the Corinthians is the defense of his own personal character, Paul his apostolic authority, his motives, and his ministry. It was written with a quill dipped in tears. So hang on to that as we continue in 2 Corinthians. From the apostles' anguish of heart and contains more of human pathos than any of his letters. In 2 Corinthians, Paul bears his heart and his life as he does in none of his other letters. This lends a special value to the letter. Keep that in mind as we go through the passage today. Look for Paul's bold and courageous love to the Corinthians. So as we step into this passage now, when I arrived in Troas to proclaim the gospel of Christ, even the Lord even though the Lord had opened a door of opportunity for me, I had no relief in my spirit because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and set out for Macedonia. So what's going on here? 
what Troas. Troas is this city that's a special Roman colony. There are these cities that were set up in Rome that had special privilege. Corinth was one, Ephesus was one, Troas was one, and you had a certain kind of dignity as a citizen of these cities. Troas, in fact, was one of these. And so you can see here, perhaps, Troas. This is uh, one of Paul's missionaries' journeys, third. You can see Troas right here. You can see Corinth over here. And so on Paul's third missionary journey, he's making his way to Troas. You can see the distance that's, that's there. And we find Troas showing up in other parts of Scripture. And so in Paul's second missionary journey in Acts 16, in fact, interesting things happened in Troas. When they came to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to do this. So they passed through Mysia and went down to Troas. And it's in Troas that we have this account. A vision appeared to Paul during the night. A Macedonian man was standing there urging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul saw the vision, we attempted to immediately go over to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. Second missionary journey, Acts 16, we find Troas again at the end of Paul's third missionary journey as he's ending and he's heading back to Jerusalem. Ultimately, we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and within five days, we came to the others in Troas. So there had become an established church that's in Troas at this point. This is after the writing of 2 Corinthians, right? So this is as he's heading back. We came to the others in Troas where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, we, when we met to break bread, Paul began to speak. Now, we don't have to actually continue in this passage, but it is a hilarious story, so I'm going to continue in this passage because it's just funny. We met to break bread. Paul began to speak to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he extended his message until midnight. Now, there were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. A young man named Eutychus, who was sitting in the window, was sinking into a deep sleep. And Luke writes, while Paul continued to speak for a long time in Greek, it's he kept speaking and speaking and speaking. Fast asleep, Eutychus fell down from the third story and was picked up dead. But Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, put his arms around him and said, don't be distressed for he's still alive. So it's this like reviving of Eutychus. Now, if that was where the story ended, like we'd still be in okay territory. But what happens after Eutychus is saved? And then Paul went back upstairs and after he had broken bread and eaten, he talked with him a long time more until dawn. Like this dude is not stopping his sermon, no matter who falls asleep dead in the audience. Then he left and he took the boy home alive and they were greatly comforted. I have, you have my guarantee today that if you start falling out in the aisles from fatigue from my speaking, uh, we're going to wind this thing up. No fakers, right? So it's got to be genuine if that happens. Crazy. But you see Paul's passion, right? I mean, you just see Paul's commitment to people, even to falling out of third-story windows, as in the case of Eutychus. So that's Troas. They arrived in Troas, and then we find out uh, this brother Titus. Titus is mentioned nine times in the book of 2 Corinthians. He's a trusted friend now and disciple of Paul. He might have been the bearer of 1 Corinthians. We don't know, but there's some speculation about that. And he is serving the Corinthian church. And it's meant to be that he would bring a report to Paul. Remember the contentious relationship. Paul is eager to know how things are going in Corinth. Have they responded to Christ to live in obedience? He's eager to hear from Titus. 
He's in Troas because the Lord had taken him there. Even though the Lord had opened a door of opportunity for me, I had no relief in spirit because I did not find my brother Titus there. Now, what's going on? These verses explain to the Corinthians why Paul was writing to them from Macedonia. He left from Macedonia perhaps after he realized that Titus was not on the last boat of the season around autumn and would have to travel by land through Macedonia. But there's something more at play here because remember, the opportunity in Troas is from the Lord. He's going to proclaim the gospel. What what Paul's typical strategy was, he would go and proclaim the gospel. The church would be established. Many times it was in a strategic center somewhere in Rome where people would pass through because it was a trading route and the gospel would go from that place and emanate across the Roman Empire and even beyond. So this becomes, remember Troas, a Roman colony, this becomes a key moment again for Paul to reinforce the early church that's now in Troas and to preach the gospel in their midst and around Troas, and it's an opportunity from the Lord. This sad account, because he has to leave, revealed how interconnected Christians are. Now listen to this. These are important words. We cannot hurt one another without also hurting the work of God in the world. His uneasiness over the Corinthians, however, made it impossible to continue his work there. The implication is that Paul's change in plans was caused by the Corinthians, and that they also were behind his failure to pursue fully a gold opportunity for evangelism. Again, we see Satan's design at work. The conflict with Corinth agitated Paul so much that it sabotaged a mission opportunity. His grief undermined his effectiveness and led him to exit doors that God may have wanted him to enter. Church strife never speeds the gospel's advance. Isn't that a powerful statement? Church strife never speeds the gospel's advance. Now, on the other side of this, what you also see is because Paul has such a deep love for the Corinthians and because he recognizes if they can walk obediently in Jesus, of course he's going to leave his present moment and step over. There's an investment to be made that creates a trajectory of a gospel-centered life for that debauched place called Corinth. So he makes an investment as he turns, so much so that what happens in the passage is Paul breaks out into a hymn. So what you're looking at now is a hymn. Paul is this passionate writer. There are these moments where like passion wells up inside him and he can't not do whatever's going on in his mind. So in the book of Philippians, he goes for 17 lines without any punctuation because it's like he can't stop long enough in his writing to put a period or an exclamation point. He's just got to get it out. And that's what happens here. So he's, he's left Troas in order to go to Macedonia. He wants desperately to be able to convey his love for the Corinthians and to help continue to correct them towards Jesus. And he breaks out of this hymn, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and who makes known through us the fragrance that consists of the knowledge in him in every place. 
So triumphal procession, this is uh, perhaps for some of you uh, a known verse. It leads us in triumphal procession. What's going on here? It's this Greek word, threambeo, and it has a specific meaning to it. Uh, It's really describing this ceremony in Rome itself in which every now and then there was this massive celebration with a parade for a general in the Roman army who had conquered a significant territory. It had to include at least five enemy soldiers who had been killed. It had to result in that territory now becoming part of the Roman Empire. It had to be such a decisive victory that that portion now of the empire would never defect, like it was just too strong of a victory for that to happen. The general would show up on the outskirts of Rome, outside of what's called the Primarium, and would stand outside of the outskirts of Rome requesting to come in to show that something significant had just happened in Rome. Part of the Senate would come out to the outskirts of the Primarium because a, a general could not enter Rome in uniform. You had to enter Rome as a citizen. But he's wanting to declare a significant victory has just happened, right? And so some of the Senate would come out and welcome the general and the troops in, and they would go through the streets of Rome. Massive, massive parade. The general and his family, the Senate would lead. You'd have captives Soldiers who had been brought in, you'd have typically the king who had just been conquered from a place. Many of these would be naked and bleeding. They would be tied up. Some of them would be held as slaves. Some would be taken about a week later into the gladiator games where, of course, they would die. There were spoils of war in the parade. I mean, it was a spectacle. In fact, let me show you just an example of what this triumph looked like.
You could see some of those elements that I mentioned in that clip. You saw the king uh, who was tied up, the one who had been conquered. You saw the general. And so in the triumph, in this threambeo, was the flaunt was to flaunt the power of the victorious army and nation and gods. The celebration reinforced the mythology of the ruler as the invulnerable victor and the guarantor of the world order. Do you remember in the, in the clip, like some of you might have seen this, as the general was coming in, there was somebody behind him holding like a wreath over his head you remember that little green and he was holding it, right? So later, this, this, this event was so powerful that later in Roman history, they had to put somebody behind the general with this wreath over his head. And that person's job was along the parade route as they passed temples, as they passed these throngs of people, was to hold this and whisper in the general's ear, you are not a god, you are just a man. because the event was just that powerful. If anybody needed to know that, be reminded of that, it was the Corinthians. Some Corinthians were overly enamored with power, success, and triumphalism. And to them, check this out, Paul's suffering exposed his impotence, which in turn cast doubt on his power as an apostle. The challenge is, as Paul uses this Greek phrase, thrombeo, here's the reality of this term. When followed by a direct personal object, thrombeo means, check this out, to lead as a conquered enemy in victory parade. It was not used to revert to those who participated in the procession as members of the army, if Paul's use of the verb accords with its common meaning, he does not represent himself as a garlanded victorious general, nor even as a foot soldier in God's army who shares in the glory of Christ's triumph. Quite the opposite. He portrays himself as a conquered prisoner being put on display. He was previously God's enemy, but is now defeated and being led to death in a display that reveals the majesty and power of God and effectively proclaims the gospel. You see what a different vision that the Corinthians had for who they wanted Paul to be. They wanted Paul to be part of this triumph and thus they themselves. Maybe not as the general, but at least the marching army that helped the general out. And Paul is making this bold proclamation saying, we are led in triumph as captives. Like it's Christ is the one that's leading this thing and he is the one doing the work. And we get the glorious privilege of being captives of the one who've moved us from death to life. He's using our story in a purposeful way, but it is his story, not ours. He's already said this in some way to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, for it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like men condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as men. We're fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. 
you Corinthians. We are weak, but you're strong. You're honored, but we are dishonored. You see how Paul is correcting two things. The Corinthians' vision for what it means to be an apostle, but also the Corinthians' vision for what it means to be a child of God. Triumphalism. Triumphalism always puts us at the center of the story. In their day and in ours, we seem to be preferring our leaders to be more loud than loving, to be more brash than bold, to be more caustic than courageously compassionate. And when we do that, we are insisting that we are in the parade, in the lead, and Christ is not. That's what triumphalism looks like. And that, when we prefer that, we put ourselves in the place of the Corinthians. Paul pivots and he says, let me, let me explain this a little bit. We're captives. And he starts this aroma motif. God always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and who makes known through us the fragrance that consists of the knowledge of him in every place. Just a couple of things to notice here. The fragrance is not that of the apostles. The fragrance is the knowledge of God in every place. That's the the content of the aroma that is meant to exude from our lives. And that's what Paul is saying. Notice how different that image is from the leading general in the triumph. Now, as, as you'd walk down this path, uh, the, this parade route, there were, it, the streets were lined with temples. And on that day, every temple was pouring forth incense into the streets of Rome as that parade would pass. And it was impossible to walk the streets in that moment and not somehow like be enveloped in this aroma. And so Paul is continuing this image of the triumph and he's saying, our lives in Christ are like that. But our lives are meant to convey not what these temples are spewing out, but the very life of Christ. He continues that aroma motif, for we are a sweet aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the latter, an odor from death to, the, to death, but to the former, a fragrance from life to life. In Greek, the way this is structured, we are being saved and life to death to death, life to life, is uh, present participles, which means we are being saved on the way to salvation, death to death, on the way to death, life to life, on the way to life. I found this a helpful idea for this passage. Speaking of what this aroma does, its effect, it makes good men better and bad men worse. Just as light on an unhealthy eye may produce blindness, while to a healthy eye it brings greater illumination. The Christian spirit brings men to judgment. It awakens the conscience to moral realities. It brings humans' pride and all its superficial triumphs to the dust. Men may resist that judgment or try to escape it, only to plunge the deeper into evil. They resist goodness 
and are hardened. Have you experienced anybody like that? Neglect of spiritual values as well as deliberate rejection dulls the spiritual senses. This is what Paul means by death, the total loss of the spiritual sense. As we live the aroma of Christ, it's not up to us to decide who smells what, how, and why. We exude Christ, and some people will be step into greater judgment because of that. Having been brought into recognition of a moral conscience, they actively choose to step away. Paul, Paul says this in Romans 1 when he makes this case. All of creation reveals who God is, and men actively turn away from that God. They're moving from death into greater death into greater death. But for Christians, the knowledge of God to those who receive it becomes a fragrance from life to life. Spiritual capacity grows by exercise. Vision becomes clearer by obedience. Christ becomes more and more to those who follow them. The reward of following him is thus a deeper understanding of his message and greater freedom to obey it. The aroma is always active, going one way or the other, bringing more death to death or more life to life. Paul says, who's adequate for these things? Now, in Greek, when he asks this question, the answer is, well, actually, we're adequate for it. And who's adequate for these things? We're not like so many others, hucksters who peddle the word of God for profit, but we are speaking in Christ before God as persons of sincerity, as persons sent from God. Hucksters who peddle the word. Now, in, in Greek, this is really simply saying retailers. Anybody in here work in retail? You're not going to raise your hand? Perfect. That's what this is, but in the economic context of the day, you had to be constantly vigilant for certain retailers who would add water to the wine to increase their profit margins, who would take cracked pots and put wax like candle wax into the crack so you couldn't see it. And you had to constantly be aware that there were hucksters around you. And what Paul is saying is those are in the church as well. That there are people peddling the word of God. In fact, an incomplete word of God for profit. And then he contrasts these. But we are speaking in Christ. We, the apostles, are speaking in Christ before God as persons of sincerity. So this word sincerity can mean pure motives, think integrity. And the idea is this, that our words align with our lives. The very words we speak are in consonance with the way in which we live. And that's what he's arguing for, for the apostles and for the Corinthians, that the way you live, let it match what you're actually saying. And then the aroma that brings life to life is like maximized. And the aroma that brings death to death is clearer to people and to you yourself. So what does this sound like? This is from Cyprian of Carthage, 200s. I love these quotes. We know virtues by their practice rather than through boasting of them. 
We do not speak great things, but we live them. Fast forward a thousand years, Francis of Assisi, all the friars should preach their deeds. It's no use walking anywhere to preach unless our walking is our preaching. And so what these men are describing are lives in sincerity, lives of integrity, an integrous life where one's words match the very lives and the gospel is there and the fragrance, the aroma just exudes from their lives. It looks like a good quote happens about every thousand years and so we are due for one coming up. What if we didn't wait on a quote? What if we just said the quote was our actual life and that we are committed to living this reality. We are the sweet aroma of Christ. This week, wherever you are, that's what you are. Let your words and your life image the very God who deeply loves people and speak of the Christ that has given his life that others might have life. Let's pray together. God, the aroma of your own goodness and generosity and love to us just swept us in. And we are thankful, deeply grateful to be captives, people captivated by the very gospel, this announcement of the good news that God has sent one to die for that which keeps us from him. Like Jesus is the perpetual reminder that you, Father, want to be near us. And this sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ. May our lives speak of him this week. And as people smell the lives that we are leading, may they be led to life through the knowledge of him. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.